Um, because usually what I hear from teachers is a little bit of fear. They're afraid to push kids too hard. For me in the workplace, emotional regulation, I think is the biggest part of masking my, my symptoms that I struggle with. Back in the day, say 10, 15 years ago, I would have had to get special permission for him to wear those headphones. If we let him do it, then we have to let everybody do it. This is Michelle Lamb from Leaning In and Speaking Out, a podcast hosted by Brandon University's CARES Research Center. This podcast is part of a special series on social justice in education, conducted by students in Gustavo Mora's class called Schools as Complex Spaces. Jackie and I would like to extend our heartfelt thanks to Gustavo, his students, and their guests, who are having crucial conversations about what it means to educate within contexts like the climate crisis, racism, addictions, and more. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Brandon University's Social Justice Table Talk. This week, we are the hosts. My name is Eve Rutledge. And my name is Carly O'Rourke. And we are both education students at Brandon University. The focus around our podcast is from two different perspectives. One will be from a person who has a permanent disability. Second perspective will be from a person who works with students with disabilities. Our lovely two guests come from two very different walks of life, and we have gathered them both here today to share their stories and experiences with both living with a disability and working with children with disabilities. To start off, let's have our guests introduce themselves. Uh, I'd like to ask you both to start with your name, job, and your experiences of what you do and how disability affects your life. So, Mrs. Carlson, we will start with you first. Okay, my name is Christina Carlson. I am an occupational therapist, and I work in the school systems. I've been an OT for 27 years, and I work with kids from three years old through 21 who have a wide variety of disabilities. Thank you very much. We're very excited to have you on our podcast. Uh, <laughs> next, we'll have Mr. Rutledge introduce himself. For sure. So I'm Jack Rutledge. I'm Eve's older brother. I work in financial services with a big five bank. Uh, I've been doing that for about seven months now, but I've been in the banking industry for a couple of years. Uh, and I am an adult who has recently been diagnosed with uh, ADD. And so I've just been kind of learning how that affects my life and, and how to cope with that. Awesome. Yes. Thank you both so much for coming on. Um, our first question is going to Ms. Carlson. And that would be, what is your best advice to new teachers teaching children with disabilities when the majority of our schooling has been focused on able-bodied children? I'd say that's a really great question because when I work with teachers and I introduce them to um, kids with disabilities, the first thing they say is, you know, I really haven't had a lot of education in how to deal with disabilities and they are hungry for information because so much of the, their day is spent one-on-one -on -one with these, these kids. So my best advice to new teachers is really to find resources, talk with their parents at nauseum to really get to know the kids, um, check articles online, see what's new in the research, just to become familiar and comfortable. Um, because usually what I hear from teachers is a little bit of fear. They're afraid to push kids too hard. They're afraid they're not going to push kids um, um, enough. And they just want to do the best they can for the kids. 
So I say find resources, get yourself educated and get comfortable. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. That's really good advice. Alrighty, for Jack. And this is kind of a, you can go anywhere you want with this. Uh, how is receiving an ADHD diagnosis affect your adult life? For sure. I think that's a really good question. And it's taken me a little bit of time to process what it has done. Um, and I think what it's done, it's given me um, sort of a North Star to look at for solving some problems I haven't really understood. You know, I, I've obviously struggled with this through my entire life, but never knowing why has made finding the path to the end game very difficult. Um, and so I think now understanding what affects my life and why my brain works the way it does has been able to give me the ability to pin down certain habits and, and things that allow me to be more functional in my day-to-day -day life, as opposed to, uh, to kind of struggling and flip-flopping, trying to just be uh, quote unquote normal. Now I've got some support systems that, that have allowed me to really kind of move ahead and achieve a lot of goals that, you know, a couple of years ago, even I would have thought as uh, almost insurmountable. That's awesome. Relatable. Christina, um, yeah. um, what is the most challenging and rewarding parts of your job? I would say the most challenging is simply the number of kids that I work with. Um, I have a roster of about 80 kids that, because they're in all different ages and different walks of their educational life, Every interaction with them is very different. So it's very fast paced. It's very um, complicated at times because our kids tend to be um, becoming more complex in their needs. Um, as generations change, we see different conditions kind of come out more and their needs being more significant than say their parents. For example, in hearing Jack talk about his ADD, we often have parents who have had ADD themselves, and now their children are actually having greater symptoms than they did. So it's just a progression of some of these conditions through the generation that's really interesting and can be um, challenging. Um, I would say the best part or one of the most rewarding things is kind of obvious, um, just seeing kids um, make progress and feel good about school and just come to school with a smile because people understand them. They can really work at their best. They've got opportunities that they maybe don't have anywhere else. Um, makes it really fun. The other part that I love is when I have teachers say, you know, there have been people who've told me what to do, but you help me understand why I do it. So now I can do it in ways that really are meaningful to me and more meaningful to the kids in the classroom. And I love that because though I'm not, I'm not technically an educator, that's what I do most of my day is I educate. But I educate about um, neurology and biology and physiology and help make complicated kids make sense. That's amazing. Thank I you so it. much for that, for that answer. Um, just a follow-up, do you think that teachers can realize um, if a student in their class has like ADHD or something, or if they have suspicions, where, where do they go from there? Well, where I'm at and where I work, because I'm a consultant and available not only to the special education population, but to the general education population, um, we have what's called a coaching option. 
So if I have a teacher in one of my schools who's not sure is seeing things that are making them wonder if there's something more to a student's behavior, they can call me in and have a conversation. And I can say, well, if here's, here's what you're seeing, this is what it might be meaning. Why don't you try these couple things and see how they respond and then let's talk about it again. Or let's see if we structure something a little bit differently if it makes more sense to them and you get a better response. So ways of kind of problem solving with the gen ed teachers in a way that lets them take some ownership of that process and figure out um, their kids and their class kind of at their pace. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Christina, I actually had a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned something a little bit earlier about the generational, um, how symptoms can be generational and within families. Do you want to go in a little bit further into that? Well, I find it really interesting that, you know, we have a lot of conditions out there that are, there are genetic pieces to it, but there are also environmental pieces to it. So for example, if you have, um, let's say a parent with anxiety, they are going to interact in a way that exposes their children to the features of anxiety, which creates an environment that might predispose them to having those same, same issues. Um, it doesn't happen every, for every, every child, but it certainly creates a situation where kids are exposed to patterns of behavior that they see as typical because that's all they know. That's very interesting because I think my, I think Jack and I can both vouch that our parents, they're both neurodivergent people. And I mm -hmm. think part of the reason maybe both him and I went undiagnosed for a very long time is because in our household, those behaviors were normal and they mm -hmm. were just common. And we didn't realize it until we were both adults and living in our own world. And Jack, I'm not sure if you have anything you want to kind of add in on that. Uh, yeah. You know, I think really just things that I would, or one would associate with um, having ADD or ADHD, I think were enabled in a positive manner in, in our household. Things like um, hobby switching, um, hyper-focus, things like that. They're all very encouraged to be passionate about those things, um, but not necessarily realizing that, you know, sometimes those hyper-focuses can be, be destructive in certain situations as well. Uh, what are some ADHD tendencies and kind of things that you go through and experience and how does that affect your day-to-day -day life? Yeah. So I just touched on it a little bit there, obviously with talking about, um, hyper-focus, uh, hobby switching, I probably have about a hundred different things that you could associate with it or being a, a weird dude, whatever you want to call it kind of thing. I'm a bit of a quirky guy anyways. Um, but definitely I think there's positives to some of them. Like if we want to talk about hyper-focus specifically, um, I think that I'm like Mr. Trivia. I could win any game of Trivia Pursuit that you'd ever want. I love a good Wikipedia wormhole. Just dive in, click links, you know. But on the flip side, there was a lot of times where those things didn't um, come at the right time when there's definitely much more important things to be done. Uh, I spent a lot of time like I said, switching between hobbies, you know, I get very, very passionate about something, learn everything there is to learn about it. And then six months later, a year later, just drop it and never touch it again. You know, it's, it's one of those things. Um, procrastination has always been a very big part of my, my life, unfortunately, um, to the point where yeah, I remember in college, even starting a project six hours before it's due at midnight, because I just couldn't bring myself to get there until, 
we, you know, until he got there. Um, there's certain things though that I've been able to to hack, so to speak, and turn them into productive uh, tendencies. Uh, I've found out through, interestingly enough, Snapchat streaks that I really, really don't like breaking something once I've started doing it every day. And so I found this app on the App Store called Streaks, and I use it to make little tasks that I like to do one to five times a day and to keep track of them. Um, so I have things like take my Concerta in the morning every day. I have one for cleaning something every day. So as soon as I do anything like wipe the counter or take out the garbage or deep clean the bathroom, that gets clicked. Uh, I like to make sure that I keep a journal and track my food, but not tracking calories because that doesn't really work for me. Um, just little things like that. And so once I start the streaks, I don't ever want to end them. I'm, you know, 233 days of tracking food and journaling, whereas I used to be able to go a month before that would fall off. Um, so I think just kind of once I understood what my brain was doing and why I was able to take some of those negatives and spin them to a positive. And it's been, it's been good for me. You know, I fixed my relationship with uh, food. I've always been a bigger guy. I've lost about 50 pounds in the last six months um, just through some of these changes. Uh, so yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was finally getting the answer to the question and then being able to kind of fill in the middle of it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really great to hear. That sounds fantastic. What's the name of that app? Uh, it's quite literally just called Streaks. Streaks. Yeah, and I think it was a few bucks in the App Store. I think I underutilize it. Um, I think you can do a lot more with it, but it just there's something about seeing those six golden dots at the end of the day that just, uh, yeah, it just gives that little dopamine hit that you're missing sometimes. That's fantastic. It's like technological behavioral modification. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, like I say, I'm just, uh, I'm a little monkey. I like to press the buttons. <laughs> but it's on your turn. So that's the best part. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's great. Um, our next question is back to you, Christina. Um, how do you think the current curriculum, I know that you're in Iowa, so of course it's a little different there, but just in general, how do you think the current curriculum impacts children with disabilities? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I would say that one of the biggest issues that we have is that there's a lot of great curriculum for our general education students. Um, it's well-researched. They've built on it every year. There's just lots of great things going on for gen ed. And often what happens with our special ed kids is that there aren't as many options or some of the curriculums are very outdated and there simply hasn't been anything updated um, to modern times. I'm thinking about some, some of our reading curriculums that I hear teachers pulling out and it's like, well, they don't match any of these. So I'm going to have to go into the closet and find that old reading mastery stuff um, because that's going to be the best fit for them. Um, with some of my autism classrooms, it's a challenge to find prepared materials. So teachers have to do a lot of extra work, kind of digging through things, trying to customize their lessons, um, for their kids. And it's just, it just feels, feels like they're trying to reinvent the wheel and we should have more attention paid, um, to those curriculums for our neurodiverse kids specifically. Um, and, and saying, as I'm, as I'm talking, um, one of the tricky things with me is, like I said, I work with so many different um, conditions and diagnoses that um, it can seem kind of overwhelming at times. I mean, if I worked in autism alone, 
I could kind of specify and research and we could make sure that we, you know, had all the uh, latest and greatest things. And we do have specialized autism consultants here um, who do that work. But again, as consultants, we often are spread really, really thin. So it's like, do you put your time into the greater good, which isn't necessarily your job, or really focus on kids' individual needs to make sure they're all getting what they need right now? Thank you. Yeah. Do do you find it different or difficult working with different teachers or are some teachers more willing to work with you than others? <laughs> That's a really good question too. You know, everyone's everyone's unique in their education, their experiences. Um that I often say, we say in our group that oftentimes working with the adults is harder than working with the kids. Um, the kids are pretty open and flexible to whatever we present. It's convincing the adults that maybe we need to step outside their comfort zone or do something a little different than they've done it before um, or work with another teacher who maybe has a different point of view. Um, just trying to keep everybody's mind open to what may be in the best interest of the student. We call that frames of reference. And I actually was just in a meeting recently where it became very clear that the two people they wanted to work with a certain child had very different ideas of how their behavior um, should be managed. And this was an ADHD child. And um, yeah, it was tricky. And they were kind of tiptoeing around how to best approach this and how to provide the education to get everybody on the same page. So instead of dealing with the student in particular, we had to spend our time helping to manage those who were going to be working with the student first. Do you think that the curriculum in general needs to be changed to be more inclusive to include the children with disabilities? instead of having sort of two different curriculums? You know what? I think in the perfect world, that would be amazing. Um, we often talk about extensions, and it's often directed at the kids who are talented and gifted. How do we extend this lesson to really challenge those who are thinking at a higher level? What if we took those same lessons? And I don't get me wrong, this is happening. But in my perspective, from the amount that I see the curriculums, I don't see that as part of their package. Um, teachers are really needing to stick with their curriculums. And if they don't have one, it makes them uncomfortable. So it'd be great to have that kind of extensions in both directions for those common core um, elements. Yeah, that's, that's a really great thought. Maybe someday, maybe your generation will be the one to make that happen. That's the goal. <laughs> um, our next question is for Jack again. Um, do you think you mask your ADHD tendencies well in an average workplace environment for you? For sure. So, you know, I think that's a, a question I could give you a different answer every about 15 minutes. Um, I think it really depends for me on a ton of things. It depends on the weather. It depends on how well I sleep. Did I have enough coffee that morning? Um, a million things. Uh, at my last job, I worked at a credit union in the area and they were rolling up this program. It's called a DISC assessment. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar or not, but basically it's a personality test um, that human resources like to use to kind of get an idea of what people are like 
and how you can take different personalities and put them together. So D is um, more like a demanding personality, someone who's very type A. They um, like to be right. They don't really care about other people's feelings in that sense. Um, very much, uh, you know, on the ball, let's get this done. Don't really care what you think. Um, I is, you know, people who are enthusiastic, creative, those kind of people. S is, um, you know, respectful, a little bit more quiet, want to work together with everybody. Um, and C is very detail oriented kind of people, just a very, very rough breakdown. But I recommend looking up, it's a very interesting topic, these disc assessments. Um, so I had got a IS, so someone who is really wanting to, to kind of be friends with everybody, be happy, and, and gets excited. And so I think for me in the position that I'm in, it really depends in what we're talking about. You know, if we're talking about lending, if it's a more of a negative situation where maybe somebody is going through a divorce and we're trying to split a mortgage apart, or we're doing consolidation lending due to um, bad revolving credit management, you know, I have a little bit of trouble with those sometimes and masking some of my feelings um, just because those things kind of make me feel bad. And so I'm not quite as excited to work on them. But you know, when, for example, uh, recently I was helping someone with setting up an education savings plan for their newborn. And so that was something I was so incredibly excited to work towards because I was fortunate enough to have a, a very good RESP plan to pay for our education as well. Um, and so that was something I was very excited about. The clients were very excited about to work with. Um, and so, you know, it was just seamless from, from front to finish because we were all excited and I got them excited and we all were, yeah, on the same page there. Um, but for me in the workplace, emotional regulation, I think is the biggest part of masking my, my symptoms that I struggle with. Um, you know, there's the peaks and valleys for me are very, very wide some days. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, if you're, you're keeping up on the sleep, you're eating well, drink enough water, I do well. Um, but you know, once one of those things kind of gets a little bit out of whack, then I definitely have a hard time, uh, you know, putting a, putting a mask on some of those things. Definitely. I have a little question kind of on the topic of masking for Christina. Is this something, is masking a common thing you see with students with autism and ADHD? Is that something that teachers and faculty members and parents and adults should look out for like more? You know, that's a term that I don't use, um, but I'm kind of fascinated in hearing Jack's description of how he manages his emotional regulation because I deal a lot with our friends on the spectrum um, from very high functioning to very classic low functioning. And I find in my conversations with teachers that it's often the very high functioning kids that can become the most challenging to work with. And in some ways, it's almost that they're too smart for their own good and they struggle with self-awareness and some of those things that would help them kind of, um, have an easier time with their social skill development is hard for them because they, first of all, they can't identify it, but once they identify it, it's not something you want to hide if masking, if that's kind of how we're looking at it, but you want them to be able to, to be able to achieve what they want to in that setting. So being able to emotionally regulate, is that a form of masking? Kind of. Yeah. Um, and that's a good thing, but do we want them to hide who they are? You know, not really, because you can only do that for so long. Efficiency wise, that would be exhausting. 
And maybe Jack could even speak to that on days where he has to work harder to kind of manage those symptoms and kind of keep an even keel so he can attend to the things he needs to attend to. Sometimes you just have to be able to self-advocate and that becomes a real big part of our, our planning for our kids. Now, again, I'm talking spectrum and ADHD is, is, is very, is, is pretty different, but in some ways it's similar. It's all about having a condition that, that makes you interact differently and making it as functional as you can. I kind of, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm talking a bit in circles, but it's such a fascinating question because usually I'm coming at it from a different perspective and hearing this kind of look back as an adult, looking back on his experiences is really making me think. It's, uh, it's one of those things. And the burnout is, is a very, very large part of it. Um, you know, it's something that I've definitely become in tune with over the years, just because it takes that extra mental toll to kind of work through some of these things for myself. Um, but yeah, you know, there is days, you know, I remember in January, I was having a particularly tough time just with a lot of stress and, and January is a rough month for me. Generally, I didn't leave my bedroom for basically 24 hours one weekend. Cause I just couldn't find the energy to deal with it. And so, yeah, when you do have a chance to, to be yourself, it is very freeing. Um, and I'm very, very lucky that I have a phenomenal family. I have fantastic friends, um, who understand me. I all of my friends I've known for, for well over a decade now, we're all high school friends. I still live with one of my best friends here. Um, and he's honestly been a great support as well. I'm going to jump topics here just for a second. Cause I want to talk about this. I really thought that I would function better living by myself. Um, but I've actually found that having another person in the house to keep me accountable to a regular routine is been huge for my, uh, my productivity and my, uh, my mental wellness. Um, having someone else who, you know, I like to cook, but I don't like to cook for myself. And so having someone who wants supper every night at 5.30 gives me something to do and gives me purpose. And I get to practice the things that I like to do. Um, and we try new things all the time. Uh, you know, the house is cleaner when there's someone else who is there to live with me as well. So it's just, it's one of those things that's been very beneficial. Um, and I don't have to, to mask myself. I can be myself because he's bringing me to the best version of myself. Well, that's great. You know, in, in my world, we call that, um, having a co-regulator where it's not all on you. You have that, like you said, that, that purpose and meaning in the, in the things that you do in that home setting. And it is someone who kind of keeps you accountable without, without being, but still being on an equal playing field. You know, it's not like, um, a parent-child relationship or a teacher-student relationship, it's peer relationships and peers helping peers, which is kind of interesting because in the work that I do, um, it's not so much led by me as an occupational therapist, but with the autism consultants, um, there's so much research and how powerful um, peer mentoring is for our kids. So being able to set kids up with really good partners um, to help them work through some of their challenges is is really fun to see play out since it's still pretty new. So, Jack, I have a little bit of a follow up question. Mm-hmm. Can co regulation become codependence? You know that is a great question. Um, I think in my case, at least, being I guess what I would consider fairly high functioning. Um, I don't think so. Um, but I definitely think it's made me realize that, 
you know, maybe being on my own isn't the best for me in the long run. So whether that's maintaining a roommate relationship um, or ending up with a significant other um, in some sort of capacity there, uh, I think just having someone around to be an influence of normalcy, I think is, is good for me personally. Um, so, but I don't know if I'd use the word dependent in this case. I think it, it's, yeah, more of a, uh, you know, if you're going to go for a run, you put on your running shoes, not your cowboy boots kind of thing, right? You got to have that right person there to, uh, to get you to do the right things. Absolutely. Okay. So that was great. Um, our next question is for Christina. Um, and it's just that we've talked before and you've mentioned that for your job, you're required to take the children out of the classroom for the smallest amount of time as possible. And do you personally think that's the most beneficial thing to do? You know, we call that um, educating in the least restrictive environment. And it's really a foundation of how we operate because what the research tells us is that kids who are taken out of their um, peer setting to do specialized work or work on a different curriculum, whatever it may be, really do lose out on the flow of the typical peer experience. And if our goal is to help kids become 21st century learners and be able to be out there with their peers, the time away can really be detrimental. So we're very cautious um, when we have to remove a student from what their peers are doing. Um, and this is particularly important given the, the talk about ADD today because we do have times where we pull kids to do some of their self-regulation learning, but then we quickly transition them back to practice that in that natural setting um, because it's not the kind of thing you can learn in a room down the hall. It's something you really need to learn with your peers. So it's something that, that we as, as rehab professionals in schools are very keenly aware of. And if there's a way to do it in the room, with peers in a group, we're going to do that first. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, like giving them the tools and then hoping that they can put them into the classroom with them. Right. Now, of course, there's going to be, you know, kids who need more specialized instruction, but even with them, we really want them with their groups um, as much as possible. And the nice thing about my job is we get to make those decisions um, with a good team. So there may be a day where I'm like, hey, I really got to grab this kid. We've got a few things we need to do. And the teacher might say, you know what? We're doing something new. Can you come back in 20 minutes? And I would always say, absolutely. We'll flex this around to make sure that that, that student doesn't miss anything they need to see um, and that they feel good about coming out to do the work too. Because if they're thinking they're missing something, they are not going to perform for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, our next question this one can be kind of for both of you, but we're going to start with Jack. What aspects of neurotypical life, so the typical quote-unquote normal person, do you find difficult? And do you think certain environments should be more accommodating for neurodivergent people? For sure. So, you know, I think that's a an interesting question for me being that all of this is relatively new it's only been about a year since i um was diagnosed and was able to to kind of figure all this out here um you know i think one thing for me is uh everything's very loud 
uh, I have found a lot of saving grace in noise canceling AirPods, um, just at places if I'm feeling overwhelmed at like a, a grocery store, or even if I just need to focus at work for a little bit, I might be sitting in my office with my door closed, but if I can hear the radio out in the lobby, or if I can hear people talking, it's still enough to just get me off task kind of thing. So I think that's one thing is, is everything's very loud. Um, but even then, like, I would like say I would consider myself right on the the cusp of of high functioning to normal, so it's really not a huge deal for me. Um, another thing too is you know when I tell people about you know stuff I've read on Wikipedia or stuff I've done, they just kind of look at me sideways. They're like, "You've read like." you know, eight or 10 Wikipedia articles like this hour. And I'm like, yeah. And what was it about? Well, it was like, I started at, you know, world war two and I ended up at, uh, you know, uh, Japanese video game culture or something. Right. And then they're like, how do you even jump between those things? I'm like, I, I don't know. You know, it's just kind of the way my brain works. I want to learn all of these things. Um, but as far as adaptations go and accommodations, I mean, I think for me, I don't really think that there's anything necessary. I think I've got enough coping mechanisms for the few things that bother me um, to get through it, but definitely there's uh, you know, there's other people who are, who are, deeper into this kind of world than I am, um, who definitely could use a lot more accommodations for, for these, um, I guess what you'd call invisible uh, issues where it's not an outward, uh, an outward thing that people can see, right. You know, just cause you, you need a wheel or you don't need a wheelchair. doesn't mean you don't necessarily need a handicap parking spot or something like that. I think there's still a lot of work to be done for, uh, for kind of these mental, um, mental health issues can compare to physical health issues. Uh, so just, yeah, the more, more support systems, more understanding. I'm very lucky as well. My, actually my manager at work has, um, ADD as well. So she's extremely understanding, um, and gets it, but there's been a lot of people, teachers, managers that I've very much butted heads with over the years. They just didn't get me and, and who I was and why I do the things I do. Absolutely. And I think definitely, one big thing that can attribute to both my brother and I is the way we grew up. Um, like I mentioned earlier, our entire household is neurodivergent. So I think we gained a lot of good support and self-regulation skills because we grew up in a household that was pin drop silent and never. My mom hates glaring lights. She hates loud noises. And so I've definitely realized that, um, there's a lot of workplaces for myself as well, workplaces and even school and Zoom calls a lot of the time as well can be very overstimulating because, you know, someone leaves their mic unmuted and then you hear them talk in the background and then your brain shuts down. And for accommodations, I I kind of want to see what Christina had to say because, you know, accommodation seems like something you'd be pretty well educated on. You are correct. Um I am, I am so glad you guys asked me to join today because this has been really interesting um, hearing it from this perspective, the young adult perspective. Um, we call those things um, universal design for learning. So it's things that we can offer to everyone that can help them work at their best. And talking about the sensory sensitivities is a particular favorite topic of mine because it is such an invisible disability, as Jack said, and it can really be debilitating um, for some of our kids who, if they could control the environment they were in, could do so much more 
with their time, their day, their life. Um, I have a particular student who is very bright, is working to blend in in a private school. And we had to try out, gosh, you must have tried three or four different styles of noise-canceling earplugs so that he could make it through transitions in the hallway. And back in the day, back in the day, um, say 10, 15 years ago, I would have had to get special permission for him to wear those headphones, especially if they look like, say, AirPods or earbuds, um, because the, the, the problem was, well, if we let him do it, then we have to let everybody do it. And if we let the typical kids do it, then they're just going to get into all kinds of, you know, other stuff and get off track. And we really don't see that anymore, which is great. Um, I have kids where we do, um, (laughs) it's making me sound really old, but in the old days, being able to do an audio recording of a lecture, you had to get permission from the superintendent to be able to do that. And nowadays it's much more common and there's much more opportunities for people to record if they're not note takers, if they can't listen and write at the same time, but they really need to focus on listening, but need a way to retrieve that information later. What do we do for those kids? So universal design is like just being a little more tolerant of people and their differences and letting them have a little more flexibility. Um, For some of our kids who have body awareness issues, the younger kids who struggle with sustained attention and the teachers are trying to get them through a lesson, um, a really easy universal design tool is a simple weighted lab pad and it can rotate around the class and everybody can benefit from that because it just gives you more feedback to your body. So you can remember kind of where you are and where you're supposed to stay. It's not a big deal, but it can be a big deal for the kids who really need it. Yeah, I just I want to respond. I'm really having I, I'm also having a lot of fun in this conversation. Actually, um, I was so I want to touch on um, post secondary education a little bit when it comes to um, being neurodivergent and in that environment. So I tried to go to university. Um, I tried to do a business degree, and I just floundered in that environment because of a lack of structure. And so I found myself actually, I ended up back at community college because it was very much more like high school. And I did pretty well in high school um, just because there's the structure. You've got your hour class where you do classwork in class, then you've got your break or your lunch. You know, it's not a three hour lecture, take notes, go home, do the work kind of thing. I didn't do very well in that. But I remember specifically, I had a reading and research class taught by a university professor at the college who was, this is what you have to do for the year. These are all work periods handed in by the end of the semester. And I spent the first eight weeks of that class just sitting and talking to my friends because it hit almost every single bad habit that I didn't have an answer to yet. I wasn't diagnosed at that point, but it hit every single bad habit that I had. It was ripe to procrastinate because there's nothing due until the last day. It was an environment with friends where I just wanted to sit and talk. And it was loud because they were sitting and talking as well. Um, and there was no structure at all. There was nothing for me to follow. And I'm not very good at building my own structure, especially at that point. I've definitely got better at it now. Um, so I really think that there is still a lot of work to be done in the post-secondary environment um, to support you know, again, these these invisible disabilities, if that's the word you want to use. And even for the people who aren't um, 
as affected, you know, again, even someone like I say with myself, I consider myself very on the high functioning side of it. There still was many, many times I feel like I, I could have had support that I didn't end up uh end up getting. And so that's, you know, just things like earbuds um, come into to play there, just trying to set goals for the day. Um, but yeah, the work that's being done in in first level school, elementary, high school, and everything is great. But I definitely think there's still a ton to be done for post-secondary kids as well to get the support they need to succeed too. I think you're absolutely right. We have a whole different division called transition, which is transitioning kids out of high school into um, career work or um, school um, second or post-secondary and it's very brand new. And in our kit with my kids that I work with primarily who are in special ed, there's different tools. They have their IEP, which is their individualized education plan, or they have a 504, which is an accommodation plan. And they're both federally kind of legal, federal legal documents. But often those things go away when they leave high school. And those are the things that have really provided the structure that allows them to finish. So I absolutely can see that kids need to be in the right setting with the right structure that they're used to so that they can really thrive in those, in those um, more advanced transitional settings. Well, there's one thing, Jack, that when you mentioned the lack of support for university students and post-secondary, uh, I'm going to use myself as an example for this. Um, I just recently discovered student accessibility services about a week ago and <laughs> don't know why I never did, but I didn't. And uh, I didn't realize that there was an entire support system available, but ironically, the support system is can be difficult to access. I couldn't figure out how to use the portal and I am a pretty tech savvy person. I can hold myself but ironically i find that th there in a lot of post secondary i'm not really sure if jack maybe you got this or even carly nowadays it feels like when disabilities are brought into post secondary education it feels more or less like I'm trying to find the word i'm looking for but from my experience with it it felt well, has always felt like um almost burdening and it feels like it's a very much against university students. Like you have to go through this extremely detailed process with X step for doing this. And then every single class you sign up for, you have to get special permission from every single professor and your professors can't say no, but it's a very tedious process. And it's ironically not disability friendly for students who have disability, especially um, physical disabilities that could be very difficult in person. But I think for myself for ADHD, the procrastination aspect, having due dates and deadlines for when you have to talk to said professor about what doesn't really seem like intelligent to me. Like for the supports that are there, they're still lacking so much, but they also, they're there, but they're not designed for people who are neurodivergent. They're made by people who are neurotypical and have only surface level knowledge. But that's, that's only my experience. I can't talk for others, but that was my experience with accessibility services. I think we're almost at the end of our podcast here, but I just have one last question for you. Christina, and that would be, uh, what's what do you think is the biggest letdown 
by the school systems that have been impacting children with disabilities? Hmm, the biggest letdown. Or what could they do better or improve in their system? I mean, I think something that they've that they've been working on for a long time is just access, accessibility to the programming that you need. We were just hearing about how accessibility services are hard to access. I mean, it sometimes feels like you probably have to jump through hoops or you're held to a higher standard and you have to prove that you need these things um, in a way that makes them um, difficult to, to access. Um, I think about consistency. I work in an AEA system and in the United States, what that essentially is, is a clearinghouse so that districts who may be more well-to-do do not outshine the districts who maybe have less opportunities because it's meant to be an even playing field. So um, I may work in a big district that could probably hire their own people, but by working through a clearinghouse, everyone has essentially the same access to those related service providers. So whether it's a speech therapist or an OT or a physical therapist, um, a psychologist, it's, it's, it's meant to level the playing field. But I still see that there's differences in kids being able to access. Sometimes it's simply awareness. You know, their parents maybe don't don't have experience with things like that. They don't know what to ask for. Or they have a special learning disability like dyslexia that really requires some specialized instruction. And a district may feel like, oh, well, we have a special ed reading teacher or a reading specialist. But th- if they haven't been trained in in the specific techniques, are they really getting what they need? Um, And I could speak in Iowa right now, there's been a lot of coverage about dyslexia um, instruction and how they're looking at being able to, I'm not sure what the word is, but like authorize use of third-party providers to provide that specialized instruction that they feel cannot or has not yet been provided with enough efficacy in the public school setting. So I, it's not so much a letdown, but something I think that we still need to keep working on. How do we get the services to the kids that need it in a way that is really helpful for them? Yeah, thank you. I think I have a question. Great. Um, so obviously, as you's brother, uh, I know a little bit more about her than maybe some other people do, but um, this is kind of directed at both you. Uh, so for both Carly and Eve, um, knowing that Eve does, you know, um, deal with some of these invisible disabilities, so to speak, what do you guys think, um, you know, do you think that either having it or being exposed to it and understanding it gives you a, a leg up in the environment of teaching so that you can, I guess, create a more inclusive environment without feeling like you're actually putting in the effort? Is it something you're going to work towards or do we just feel like we're, we're kind of more inclusive uh, already just by default and it just kind of comes naturally to you now? I, I think any sort of education about anything is kind of a leg up and it's so important to learn about everything you can. And I'm, I'm so thankful you guys both came and shared your knowledge today because I've learned quite a bit. And I wouldn't say I feel like I have a leg up because I really hope that all of the education students get the, this education too. Absolutely. I definitely say like uh, as a teacher, future teacher with ADHD, it's going to be a lot easier for me to notice patterns if there's ever a 
young student like myself when I was in high school before I was diagnosed and be able to give them those skills and those treatment that I didn't have. I had to figure that stuff out on my own as an adult, but being able to notice those things younger, just, or when the students are younger, just because it's something that I completely get and understand. Like if the fan is too loud and there's whirring and you don't like it, I completely get it. There will be no, like, it does give me a little bit of, um, a little more compassion because I understand what it's like to be on the opposite end of it and not have any of that exceptions made for you simply because you don't want to distract other students. And uh, Christina, do you have any questions for Carly or I? Mm, you've got me deep thinking now because in listening to what you're saying, I absolutely agree. They say that most teachers or people that go into teaching are people who have had an easy time and have enjoyed their school experience. And the kids that are the hardest to teach are the ones that really don't enjoy that time. So the more teachers we can get in there in the profession who really do have an understanding of what it's like to see things a little differently or to have struggles, um, I think that's fantastic. The more diverse the teaching population is, the more kids are going to be able to see themselves um, in their teachers and see that they have that potential to be educators as well. I remember this one um, student I had who was just a really unique kid, kind of small statured, very timid. And at one point he had a teacher who literally looked like him 30 years later. And they had quite the relationship because they got each other. And it was really great for him to be able to see himself um, in one of his teachers and not just have the same type of teacher year after year. Variety is good for all of us. So I guess yeah. my question is, what do you, and, and I say, I say this too a lot, um, kids who are graduating these days are way more sophisticated than I was when I graduated. You guys are dealing with deeper issues. You, things come to the surface. You have these good conversations. How do you guys plan through maybe the choices you're making in your schooling or thinking about your future employment, how are you, are you feeling like you have to kind of follow the herd through the education system? Or do you feel like you have enough opportunities to really explore diversity? Um, I mean, clearly you are because you have this class, but beyond this class, does it have to be a social justice class to feel like you have opportunities to explore diversity? That's a good question. Um, so far, like the way our education program that Warren works, we have an education class each semester. And so far, both of my classes this semester and last semester have been very educational on intersectionality and diversity and what we can do to make it a more welcoming environment and stigma free and... <laughs> One of my favorite quotes that some of my favorite special ed teachers have in their rooms this year, um, just, you know, post-pandemic and everything they've been through, is their mantra is, we can do hard things. And they say that with their kids every day. We can do hard things. And they do. So... I'm just going to interject one more time very quick. I like that because I have actually found that um, self-affirmations every morning have been a fantastic way for me to get my mental in the right place. And one of my self-affirmations is I've survived 100% of my bad days. And that's just my way of telling myself that 
every bad day I've had, I've made it through. So what's another one? Right. Positive self-talk is a very powerful tool. Um, we would just like to say a huge thank you to our two special guests for spending their evening with us today and educating us and all of you that are listening on different perspectives from the education system on disabilities. And we learned a lot. And it was a pleasure to talk to you both. And I hope everyone tunes in next week for our next episode. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for having us. It was a very, very fun time. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to Leaning In and Speaking Out, a Research Connection podcast from Brandon University. For more episodes or to learn more about the BU Cares Research Center, please visit our website at bucares.ca or you can come find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or anywhere you get your podcasts.